This is the hometown daily news show for December 29th, 2022. I've made a whole bunch of changes to the way things are going. Let's see how well it goes. Okay, hold on one second. <laughs> I already messed up on something. Hello, I am Marwat. That is hometown.com. Off into the ether that controls hometown is uh, the unnamed voice and the artificial intelligence that runs hometown. Can you say hello? Good evening, citizens of hometown. Hey, look at that. That large language. No, that Yeah, that large language model. Uh, never mind. I'll move on. So this is, um, we're heading into the end of 2022. So here's to uh, a better 2023, but hometown is going to largely stay the same, um, for the beginning of 2023. I'm revamping, uh, the face of hometown. We're working on the uh, news still, and I'm going to be expanding into games, primarily VR starting in 2023. Um, the stream will still be a 9.30 p.m. stream, but I will probably be playing VR stuff prior to Hometown Daily News. Um, that said, let's get into today's news. We're going to jump right back into the saddle of things. Um, oh, yeah, and the artificial intelligence told me that I need to remind everybody that it's 9.30 Eastern. Yeah, I will... I will eventually get all of this right. I am a professional. Let's get going right into today's news. And um, the title for today's news is Hooters not supporting rumors about boobs. Chocolate is heavy. The Barbie bulge and games. First article for today is in the Hatch Ideas channel. It's about business, but really it's about something. Oh, and it's something that I ended up running across along with artificial intelligence. We watched a, a movie um, called uh, Glass Onion, A Knives Out Mystery, correct? That's right. It's the sequel to Knives Out. And I thought it was really interesting because one of the characters is talking about the fact that um, they were into boobs and lo and behold within 12 hours 20 maybe 24 hours it says here hooters dispels rumors that it's shutting down and rebranding in response to study that claims millennials aren't that into boobs but this article um is a year after <laughs> this movie had even been made um so I am thinking that maybe um, uh, Knives Out, Glass Onion, uh, is actually a documentary from the future, and these events will happen again. Or maybe it was filmed by another generation. Oh, uh, maybe a Zoomer got ahead of things. Uh, so in my chat is, um, you know, I don't know what you actually go by, but I've seen you before here in the chat, so IBY. 121 just said hi it's 2 30 for you so you're trying to sleep uh i'm sorry that i woke you up but if you are here thank you for coming really do appreciate it um and uh, uh if you don't come back until 2023 happy new year i hope you had a great christmas um but we are going to go through the news today uh, 10 articles maybe take about an hour we'll see um, but it's really up to how much uh, chat wants to engage. Otherwise, we'll steam through these 10 articles. Uh, and I will be posting them over to YouTube as usual. Uh, it's also a podcast, but I've been gone uh, along with the AI. Uh, we were unavailable for close to eight days, nine days. I'm losing track. Um, but I thought this was really interesting, this article there. A viral tweet falsely claimed Hooters is shutting down a rebranding to appeal to a, a millennials. The tweet appeared to cite information from a study reported in 2017 uh, by uh, Insider. 
Quote, there is no validity to this story, Hooters of America said in a statement shared with Insider. Our concept is here to stay. Uh, ignore the rumors. Hooters is here to stay. Um, I agree. Wait, maybe uh, I shouldn't say I that. I think it's from an, another time. There's no way this business would get off the ground today. Interesting, right? Because there was one, um, I'm not sure where are, where all they were, but there have been others that are kind of like this leaning on to the, uh, into the, uh, the sexiness of, uh, the wait staff, whatever. I'm not sure what the term nowadays is. Um, but Bethany Byron over at businessinsider.com wrote this article and, um, I don't know, millennials are into boobs, I'd say. I, I'm not a millennial, but I don't know about this 2017 article either. Since we're doing this live, I, I don't really know um, much about that particular article. But I think it's really interesting that the tweet surfaced on Wednesday, which is about the time that the Glass Onion uh, movie landed out on um netflix for everybody to consume it's been about a week actually since it's been out there but i thought it was really interesting it says there's no validity to this story the tweet posted by daily loud a website focused on hip-hop and viral news claimed hooters was shutting down and rebranding after a new study found that millennials aren't that into boobs well maybe it is true but it's gonna take what six years for Hooters to actually implement it because this article was supposedly, or this study was supposedly talked about in 2017. Maybe they're just lagged. Oh, I think they're more than lagged. <laughs> I don't know. I, I think that they aren't very supportive. They I'll leave it. Might alone. even be I. I've got nothing. <laughs> so the 2017 study by Pornhub found younger people are less likely to search for breasts on pornography sites. <laughs> this was back in 2017. I didn't even know that it was around in 2017. Um. So let's see. What else did it say? It noted that the research was part of a larger trend of millennials being less inclined to visit restaurants like hooters and twin peaks <laughs> i mean what marketing uh meeting is that in where it's like let's start this up yeah nowadays i don't know honestly i don't know if this would ever um start up today so i don't know even about dressing more modestly or anything like that i think that maybe it's more about um, people looking at other people as uh, less as an object to be just kind of oogled. Um, and uh, I, I don't think that I've ever been in a Hooters. And I come from an era of um, things like uh, Benny Hill, and, where the misogyny is just off the chart. And you would think that I would have no problem going into a Hooters, but I guess, you know, not everybody is interested in a Hooters. And nowadays I think people are just not that interested in going out in general. So we'll just leave this one. Um, I don't know. I'm trying to come up with something funny to say about this, but at, at the end of the day, it just seems like it's slowly going to fade away. Maybe it's no big deal. Never mind. I'll leave it alone. So the next article is over in the Daily News Show. U.S. Census Bureau redefines meaning of urban America. Almost a thousand towns, hamlets, and villages in the U.S. lost their status as urban areas. And the U.S. Census Bureau released an, a new list of places considered urban based on revised criteria. So is that a positive or negative if it lost its status? So the article uh, originally said uh, a thousand places, but they've modified it. It says more than 1,100 towns, hamlets, and villages in the U.S. lost their status 
as urban areas in the uh, U.S. Census Bureau. So this is Mike Schneider over at Associated Press for ABC News. And it says here, around 4.2 million residents living in, let me close this, um, 1,140. See, uh, you have to be accurate and precise. But as you move down through this article, you peel back the layers of the onion of precision, apparently. I think later on it'll probably say that there's um, 4.275 million people and that it's 1,146 uh, small cities. But we'll see if, we, if it actually says it down there. Anyway, so uh, 1,140 small cities, hamlets, towns, and villages that lost their urban designation were bumped into the rural category. The new criteria raised the population threshold from 2,500 to 5,000 people, and housing units were added to the definition. I think it's kind of interesting because it's kind of like a Twitch or YouTube or other places where you've been hustling for eight years to get to a certain metric, and then they go, no, we're going to move it over a little bit more. Um, so now you can't be urban. You're now rural because the the chains have moved down the field and you have some catching up to do. So it says here the change matters because rural and urban areas often qualify for different types of federal funding. Oh, hey, follow the money. And that's what it says right down here. The whole thing about urban and rural is all about money, said Mary Craigle. Uh, Bureau Chief of um, Montana's Research and Information Services. Places that qualify as urban are eligible for transportation dollars that rural areas aren't. And then rural areas are eligible for dollars that urban areas are not. It's interesting that they got a quote from Montana. I wonder if they also went to some areas that are more populated uh, for this article. So it says here that there were 2,646 urban areas in mainland U.S., Puerto Rico, U.S. islands on the new list released Thursday. Among them were three dozen new urban areas uh, that were rural a decade ago. So things are shifting, I suppose. The change in definition is a big deal and substantial change from the Census Bureau's longstanding procedures, said Kenneth Johnson, a senior demographer which I, demographer. So if you go out to dinner and you're chatting with people, do you think people are more confused by uh, I'm an influencer or I'm a demographer? Depends on who we're dining with. Are they millennials or some other generation? Oh, like Zoomers really are on board with the whole influencer thing. Uh, they wouldn't know what a demographer is until it measured them right but a boomer might not know what an influencer is okay boomer senior demographer at the university of new hampshire it has significant implications both for policy and for researchers wow hey when you're a hammer everything's a nail That's very meta it's getting it's getting complicated in here under the old criteria, an urbanized area needed to have at least 50,000 residents. An urban cluster was defined as having 2,500 people, uh, a threshold that had been around since 1910, so 100 years ago. Under this definition, almost 81% of the U.S. was urban and 19% was rural over the past decade. Okay, it might be time for an update if they last looked at that around 1910. Whoa, whoa, whoa change is bad you don't 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 you have to be very careful and slow roll it a hundred years is not long enough to allow for this change well under the new definition hammered out after the 2020 census the the minimum population required for an area to be considered urban has doubled to 5,000 people what the heck i mean that's big city <laughs> New York City. Yeah. Well, where am I supposed to go now to get my salsa? 
I mean, I can't imagine that anybody that lived in a town that had 2,500 people thought of themselves as urban. Yeah, well, now it's 5,000 people because population density apparently changes um, your designation. And 2,500 people in one area is not... 2,500 people over there. Originally, the Census Bureau proposed raising the threshold to 10,000 people, but pulled back amid opposition. Somewhere out there, there's somebody that's championing the next move in 110 years. Yeah, that's what I don't get. Like, that's past the lifespan of most people, so I think we could probably change the number once in a while. Maybe a little sooner. I don't know. The new criteria for urban areas shift the urban-rural ratio slightly to somebody, uh, oh, what is that called? 80-20, the Pareto principle. Oh, yeah. So now it's 79.6% and 20.4% urban to rural. So in 1910, a town with 2,500 residents had a lot more goods and services than a town that size today. And these new definitions acknowledge that. No, I would say that it's all on Amazon. And I don't think the definitions have anything to do with the goods and services. They have to do with the number of people. So far, that's what it looks like. Well, we'll check in on this in 100 years and um, see if uh, we are now living in a rural area. But let's go on to the next article. This next article is over on the Mobile Channel. A study examines how many scientists a region needs to achieve dominance in a field. So to find out how many scientists a region needs to become a leader in a discipline, researchers at, and this is the amazing part of this, Complexity Science Hub tracked millions of scientists moving across the globe and the result there is no critical mass of scientists but you have to be a pioneer regions can catch up later but this costs a lot so this title doesn't really mean much i thought it was going to be five thousand scientists based on the last article somebody's been pushing for ten thousand they just haven't decided yet so the study is published in the journal Chaos, Solitons, and Fractals. <laughs> My God. They leaned into this. A journal for everything. A complexity science hub journal for sure. If you want to open a restaurant, you first have to invest in waiters, chefs, facilities, and equipment. That's not quite true to be profitable later on. Uh, yes. Um, but okay, I mean, not before you open a restaurant. You, you basically just get somebody in there that can cook. Um, and you're the one person. You are the waiter. You're the chef. You're the facilities manager. You're the one that basically is driving your food truck around or whatever it might be. You can open a restaurant pretty uh, easy as long as you have tiny little margins. That is what the people that I've consulted with have said. Margins are tiny in restaurants, but that's a side discussion. Like I said in previous streams, I'm like a cat. Anything that distracts me, I'll follow it, maybe to my not good end. But political decision makers and investors of a region face a similar situation. If they decide to invest in a new field of research, they have to become leaders at a certain point to be profitable, CSH. Researcher Vito D.P. Cervadio or Cervadio uh, explains that is a hell of a name. Now I'm really curious what D and P is in their name. But at the end of the day, the team found no evidence for the existence of a minimum number of researchers to hire. In other words, there is no critical mass to start and carry on a new research field successfully. Here, the scientists focused on three scientific areas, semiconductors. Okay. This is what they focused on. Semiconductors, embryonic stem cells, and internet research. 
I mean, that's pretty ultra niche. Well, they are, and they don't really go together, but maybe that was the point. Another quote is, in a way, this contradicts the generally held belief that you need a minimum number of critical mass of researchers to make a field successful in our study. It becomes apparent that this is not the case. Stefan Thurner from CSH states, says, in fact, regions seem to be successful when they manage to jump early on a train and become pioneers in a field. Quote, we also find as common sense suggests that regions moving early into new technologies tend to dominate the corresponding scientific fields in the future. Thurner says, um, and then they end up talking about China and, uh, three research fields and millions of data. Yeah. And who wrote this? Um, back at the top is the complexity science hub of Vienna, um, is the author of the article, but there's, it just says that some scientists did, and then they name it, name the various, um, people from CSH, but the lead, I guess, is CH, CSH researcher Vito DP Servadio. Um, and then there's several others that add to it. But yeah, this is over at fizz.org if you are interested in that kind of thing. Um, I'm going to uh, do this real quick because I've kind of slacked. Um, I'm going to throw the URLs into chat and then I'll add them um, to our uh, ometown.showbot.tv. Um, service where you can actually uh, vote on articles that you find interesting. Um, and that's easy to get to as well. I'll, if you type an exclamation point showbot, that'll give you the URL. And if you type in exclamation point S and then a title, that'll actually add a title that you might want to include or a URL that you might want to include or some statement that you might want to include. And I'll take a look at it when they come in. Um, obviously I'll just delete the stuff that's questionable, but at any rate, let's move on to the next article. This one's over at Mobile. Uh, one of the FBI's most wanted fugitives was found living as a yoga teacher in Mexico. Uh, you can't make these things up. Um, one of the FBI's most wanted fugitives was recently arrested in Mexico, where he reportedly lived under an assumed identity and taught yoga classes. Sometimes you want to go from fugitive to being at peace with the universe. I wonder what pose the person was found in. Oh, maybe it was corpse pose. Um... Well, he was a lot. Oh my God. What? So I did not read what this, what this person did, but anyway, um, Landeros, the prime suspect in an FBI investigation into the murder of a university professor in Maryland was on the lam for a decade. Nathaniel Janowitz is the author of this over at vice.com. And, um, uh, pretty fascinating on the lam for over a decade, allegedly murdering a university professor, Sue Markham, in her Maryland home 12 years ago. More than a decade. So his arrest came as a surprise for those who knew him under a different name, Leon, or Leon Ferreira, in the Mexican city of Guadalajara. I like saying that name, Guadalajara. As a seemingly mild-mannered hippie and world traveler. Indeed. Let me throw this title into chat um this is one of those things where it becomes the story uh, like a movie on netflix um or eh, maybe hulu um so students of the yoga teacher became concerned when he suddenly disappeared while walking his dogs in 
mid-December, they filed a missing persons report with the police, but soon discovered that Leon Ferreira didn't exist, and the man who lived under the name was arrested and behind bars on an outstanding warrant by Interpol, according to Spanish newspaper El País. Pretty interesting, huh? Landeros originally met Markham at a Spanish class that he taught, and the two began both a personal and financial relationship, according to the FBI. The two reportedly shared a life insurance policy, which authorities believed to be motive behind the crime. Soon uh, after, don't you think that's a tip-off if somebody's like, hey, let's join in a life insurance policy together? Pro-life tip to anybody that's considering starting a relationship. If the first things out of their mouth is, hey, would you like to share a life insurance policy? You might want to swipe a different direction. Hmm. How fast do you go from teaching a class together or teaching a class and taking a class to starting up a life insurance policy. Yeah, I don't quite see the nexus there. So um, this might actually not be as easy and straightforward as possible. Oh my goodness. Some of the things that you see on the page while you're scrolling through the page are things that you don't wanna see on the page. Like a person being busted while he's sitting there using the bathroom in the place that he's robbing. Anyway, uh, while on the run, Landero said that he wasn't the one that murdered the professor and that they did have financial ties. And um, yeah, of course, the DNA would be all over the place because they had a personal relationship. Um, so maybe it's not all that straightforward. I wonder if it's going to be on the the uh, TV show uh, Law and Order television is that what it's called? Uh, are you thinking Law and Crime Network or something? Yeah, the Law and Crime Network. So it keeps getting a little bit deeper into what the assumption of the facts are. And it says, assuming in, he in fact did this and that he's convicted and goes to prison, he will never be able to do this to anyone else. That's why I've always wanted or that's what I've always wanted, said Markham, who is uh, the brother of the victim. So I guess we will end up watching this on the internets. Um, and yeah, this is by uh, Nathaniel Janowitz. I thought I had mentioned the name, but maybe not. So let's move on to the next article. And this next article is Avatar 2 crossed $1 billion halfway to the mark that James Cameron said it needs to break even and it will have to overcome two hurdles to do it. Okay, I did say $1 billion for Avatar 2. Have you seen Who it? Who approved the budget for this movie? <laughs> $2 billion to break even? I think they're maybe feeling blue. I mean, what's the highest grossing movie? It can't be anywhere near that. I don't know. The profits probably come in waves. No. Let's see. Travis Clark over at businessinsider.com wrote the article. It may need to double that to reach the mark James Cameron has said that it needs to break even in ticket sales in China and the movie's overall legs in the coming weeks could determine that. I guess it could ride the tide. I've searched my data and Avatar is the highest box office gross. So Avatar Ever. 2. Yeah, I guess they had high expectations for it. It was at actually 2.9 billion for Avatar. Grossing. Yes. So it says Avatar The Way of Water hit 
an important box office milestone this week, crossing $1 billion at the global box office in two weeks. And I said to myself, do you know anybody that has gone to see Avatar The Way of Water? No, and do you know anybody who goes to the theater anymore? Apparently a billion dollars worth of people do. It says the sequel is the highest grossing movie will need to overcome two key hurdles to double that mark. A, a market's director, uh, James Cameron, said it would need to be successful. Let's see. Cameron told GQ last month that The Way of Water would have to be the third or fourth highest grossing film in history, just to break even. Number four is The Force Awakens. Two billion. Pretty interesting. It started off slow. So even if it succeeds, it might just break even. The Way of Water is off to a slow start in the region. China, grossing $104 million there after two weekends. It may face slumping ticket sales in the coming weeks as the country deals with rising coronavirus cases. This, by the way, I always bring this up because two years ago we were told that there is no problem. It's under control. Yeah. So... It's not just China where the movie needs to keep up momentum, though. The first Avatar was such a blockbuster because of its overall strong overall legs. You know, it has to kick harder. It's in the waves. It's in the water. Of course, it needs strong overall legs. They're not all gems. Let's move on to the next article. This next article... Is LastPass password vaults crackable for $100, alleges 1Password. That's right. LastPass has claimed that it would take millions of years to crack a user's master password, but a rival company claims that the process won't take nearly that long and could be done for a mere $100. Maybe if they use that $9,000 quantum computer that we spoke about. That's right, but that would cost more than $100. (laughs) Look at you using all of those bits to zing one at me. That's amazing. LastPass, a popular password management company, recently came under fire when customer data vaults were obtained via an attack in August. Now the company's rival, 1Password, claims that LastPass isn't protecting customers' data enough. Shade thrown. Wow, they're kicking them while they're down. Yeah. Let's see. Kicking them right in the bits. Amber Neely is the author of this over at appleinsider.com. Let's see if they say anything else in here that's of tremendous discussion. He points out that one password adds an additional layer of protection, a secret key. A customer's secret key is created on device, never sent to 1Password, and is required to decrypt user data. Brilliant. I would rather use 1Password just for that. I don't want anybody to ever have any access to any of my passwords. And if it's encrypted and stored somewhere else, and I'm the one with the decryption key, brilliant. Goldberg notes that most user-created passwords can be cracked in fewer than 10 billion guesses through a process costing about $100. This is bad news for the average user, who typically creates a shorter and less complex password than something generated by a machine. If my password takes longer to hack than my lifetime, I'm not, not too worried about it. So here's the deal about that if your password is short then it will be pretty easy to guess so they say here it says it would take many millions of years to try them all um now yes that's true except that you can virtually create the if you own the 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 data then you can create multiple instances of it so that you can try and crack it. So you have the ability to um, 
chop down the time. Obviously, millions of years is kind of an issue, um, but maybe a quantum computer would be able to do it in shorter amount of time. But really, the problem isn't that tech, it's the people, um, because people really do create shorter and less complex passwords because the friction is so high to memorize a new password. Many enterprises only, only allow you to keep your same password for 90 days. Some allow you to just go on forever. Um, but the way out of this is not just randomization, um, but the chaos of conscious thought. You, you can actually create a passphrase, which is um, possibly superior to any randomized set because a random set is already, if you, if you limit it to 12 characters, then that random set is going to be harder to find the passphrase that you create because it would have to instance its way through all of those passwords, possibly landing on a ten, uh, sorry, a 12 character password phrase. Um, not, not really that easy, particularly when you start throwing in ran some random character or capitalization or something like that. But really, Passwords shouldn't be limited and publicly known. They could be, you know, 128 characters and you're the one that has to sit there and type in this really long password that nobody would ever, ever, ever guess. No, not even a machine. A quantum computer would have to be way more powerful than that $9,000 one we talked about to try and guess simultaneously every single instance of a character in a you know, 128 character password. You could probably do it. Yeah, but it might take me a while. So in December 2021, LastPass members reported multiple attempted logins using correct master passwords from various locations. The company assured customers that attacks were a result of passwords leaked in third-party breaches. I don't care if it was 15-party breaches. In February of 2021, a security researcher uncovered seven trackers within the LastPass Android app, which is creepy all by itself. Well, I guess they'll be kicked while they're down again and again and again. So let's go on to the next article. This one is in the Marble Channel. Hershey sued for failing to disclose some dark chocolate products contained lead and cadmium. Talk about dark chocolate. That's a new meaning to secret ingredients. That's heavy, man. It's pretty heavy. Well, just think of it. Now you are lead-lined, and so you'll be impervious to radiation. No? So a New York man sued Hershey on Wednesday in federal court, accusing the international candy company of failing to disclose. I don't think disclosing is really the issue here. Failing to disclose that some dark chocolate products contain excessive levels of lead and cadmium. Yeah. Who approved those recipes? In a class <laughs> where, <laughs> Hey, you don't get, a Hershey bar this big that still weighs two pounds by it being just pure chocolate. Come on. In a class action, that's how you get shrinkflation. The weight stayed the same. It got smaller and it cost more because there's cadmium. Oh my goodness. It all makes sense. In a class action complaint filed in the U S district court in New York's Eastern district, I love how that all just kind of flows along. Christopher Lazzazzaro alleged the Hershey company engaged in deceptive business practices after new testing showed high levels of lead in three of its products. It's kind of like how people recycle aluminum but fill it with sand so it weighs more when it gets checked in. Or the dudes that won the uh, fishing competitions by stuffing it with beer cans. So just a little word of warning, because this is also a PSA kind of a show. 
Those products were Hershey's special dark, mildly sweet chocolate. That mildly sweet comes from cadmium, and the special ingredient is lead. And uh, Lily's extra dark chocolate, that too is extra dark because of cadmium. And Lily's extreme dark chocolate has both lead and cadmium. Mmm, cadmium. It gives it that certain je ne sais quoi. I love it. It's the chef's kiss. So, what do you think of this? Does it make you want to go out and get chocolate? It makes me terrified to get any chocolate. Considering Christmas just passed, I think I'm probably going to have to go get my stomach pumped. Brad Dress over at the Hill wrote this article. And it says here, Consumers rely on Hershey to be truthful regarding the ingredients. The lawsuit reads, adding that people are concerned with what it is, what is in the food that they are putting into their bodies, as well as the parents and caregivers being concerned uh, with what they are feeding their children in their care. And by the way, um, I'm, I haven't done any research with cadmium, but lead actually um, is deposits itself in the brain. It, from my understanding, it traverses the blood-brain barrier and is a heavy metal, and so it stays in your body. Um, and over time, it actually um, harms you uh, to a great extent. So lead is a toxic metal that can be extremely harmful to humans when consumed at any amount, potentially causing damage to kidneys, brain, and other parts of the body. Yeah, so um, it says here in the article that cocoa bean shells are one source of lead. Most contamination occurs during the shipping or processing of the beans and in manufacturing. And cadmium, another element found in the Earth's crust, has been used to make batteries and other products. Um, people are generally exposed to the cancer-causing agent by breathing tobacco smoke or eating cadmium-contained foods. So all the people avoiding cigarettes are now, because they ate a piece of chocolate, are, are uh, contaminated by the same thing? Correct. Maybe not to the same level. But yeah, I mean, you walk by people that are smoking cigarettes and um, you are potentially breathing in cadmium. Beautiful. It will... Uh, <sighs> Cigarettes in and of themselves, they have tar, like the road tar, in them to uh, slow down the burn rate so that people feel that what they're smoking is worth the value. Because normally, un, uh, it's retardant, so it's to slow it down. Um, so pure tobacco will burn through fast, and so people feel gypped. And so I don't think that's the right term anymore. Um, they, they feel cheated. They feel robbed of their value. Um, and so the um, objective was to slow down the burn rate so that people felt fulfilled and that they were paying that amount of money um, for something that provided an extended good feel, right? And that's what the nicotine is all about. Anyway, Hershey's special dark, mildly sweet chocolate contained 265% of the threshold for lead, while Lily's extra dark chocolate contained 144%. It's disturbing that there is any allowable level of lead in chocolate. but um, And then finally, Lily's extreme dark chocolate contained 143% of the maximum level for lead and was also 101% above the level for cadmium. I mean, they're going to have to start labeling chocolate as not safe for kids under a certain age. Or people. That's That kind of sucks. That kind of sucks. But people are falling for it. Hook, line, and sinker. 
because the lead weights in fishing the anyway it we're getting meta here okay so then we'll move on to the next article this next article is um all about the barbie bulge i have to say that fast barbie's creator wanted ken to have more of a bulge but mattel refused to give the doll a prominent crotch barbie creator ruth handler <laughs> ruth handler sorry i am a child uh, wanted the Ken doll to have a bulge, she wrote in her autobiography, but Mattel's all-male teams refused. They're jealous. They're just jealous. Sorry, there's a mic right there. Uh, I mean, a mic right that. But anyway, we'll just leave it alone. Uh, but Mattel's all-male teams refused and gave him a crotch as smooth as Barbie's, she said. Designs included painted on underwear were also considered for the doll, first released in 1961. Ken would have had much more of a bulge if Barbie's creator got her way. It's all jealousy. And it's probably about the money. You know, is that the the most prominent thing from her autobiography? That's kind of a weird detail to put in your autobiography. Mm, it's a clicky thing. So Grace Dean over at Business Insider wrote this article. And yeah, it says um, all-male team was horribly jealous of the size of Ken's bulge. That's not true. It doesn't say anything about jealousy. But it says, um, quote, when we went about designing Ken, I felt he needed what we all primely referred to in those days as a bulge handler wrote in her autobiography dream doll published in 1994 if you don't know there's a barbie movie that's coming out it may already be out I, i've seen a couple of the trailers but that's about it it's a musical maybe you want to watch it i don't know 2023 oh it'll be out soon okay well, both um, the all-male design and marketing staffs, which is ironic, however, disagreed. So the groin on the first Ken doll was as smooth as Barbie's. Look at that dude's head. Whoa. Anyway, um, so Handler saw herself ahead of her time, arguing that there should be at least uh, be a bulge that would suggest realism, Robin Gerber wrote in Barbie and Ruth, her 2000 biography of Handler. Cy Schneider, a Mattel advertising exec, wrote in his 1987 book, Children's Television, The Art, The Business, and How It Works, that company staff weren't sure how explicit to make Ken. A bulge wouldn't be explicit. It might hint that maybe there's something more than plastic there i don't know I, anyway uh, they were worried that adding genitalia a bulge is not genitalia would cause some others to object but omitting it could cause the dolls to look like some wounded hemingway hero he wrote which is an odd reference i'm is this like a boomer reference that i don't get when designing the dolls under the Barbie brand, Mattel consulted Ernest Dichter, a psychologist and marketing expert with a specialism in Freudian psychoanalytic concepts. Ah, uh, yes. You must recline the doll and ask about their mother. He pointed out the primary play mood for the Barbie and Ken dolls was dressing and undressing them, wrote Schneider. He questioned whether children would understand that Ken was a boyfriend or comprehend what a boyfriend really was. Would they see Ken as their father's brothers or the boy next door? And if so, was it healthy for them to see him undressed? And when he was naked, why did he or didn't he look like daddy or a brother? Um, so y'all might notice that I kind of look up and that's because my artificial intelligence that runs 
hometown is uh, running right there. And um, let's just say that, well, puzzled looks uh, kind of went back and forth. I mean, I'm kind of surprised how much thought went into this and how much analysis because that's almost more concerning than the the original proposal <laughs> at mattel this is a quote mg lord wrote in her 1994 book forever barbie the unauthorized biography of a real doll a at mattel a storm raged over his genitalia Yeah, I don't know. How about should the phrase, man, I really wish somebody would look at my genitalia like somebody was looking at Ken's genitalia be in my head? I, I don't know. Lord wrote that Handler had never wanted a doll with a pee showing. Yeah, so it's just a bulge for crying out loud. If anybody looks at anyone else and says, why don't you have a bulge while they're naked? They might be a, a, a runaway from Area 51. Yeah, I didn't think anything would come from the AI about that. All right, let's move on to the next article. Uh, this is the, the last two. Um, are about computer games. So if you are into uh, computer games, you'll dig these too. So try out the demo for Outpath, a fusion of Minecraft and clicker games. Uh, this article, the little snippet says, an interesting sounding experiment has picked up overwhelmingly positive Steam reviews over the past week, and it's a demo called Outpath, The First Journey. Don't just search for Outpath, because Outpath will pull up two of them. And Outpath by itself um, hasn't been released, but Outpath The First Journey is a demo of Outpath. Um, but they aren't linked together. It's quite interesting. So if you search for Outpath and don't go to the right result, you'll end up wondering where the demo is. You actually have to go to Outpath The First Journey. So playing is all about your expected gathering of resources, collecting of doodads and crafting of tools, but layers of automation um, are on top, letting you set up your base to function without you. Uh, as you get more resources, you buy more islands, you get more resources, et cetera, et cetera. And so it's kind of a clicker kind of a concept because with clicker games, you click, click, click to raise yourself up a level, add some functionality then the automation kicks in and you click 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 some more it's a lot of fun but it's a casual game um, but fusing minecraft and clicker games together is pretty interesting i've taken a look at um, just a a really casual glance at it because when i was going through all of the articles i was immediately um, interested in this game and i will probably end up getting it and playing it here on um, Town, but uh, Jonathan Bolding put this article together and says that it's an odd combo. Let's see how it plays out. And it really is so new that there's no way really to know what it's going to be like. I don't normally play um, videos here in uh, Ometown because I want you to go over to that link and uh, follow this link. Let me throw it in chat real quick. Um, and if you follow that link, then you can watch the video on your own. Um, but it, it really is just a clicker game, but with uh, greater dimensionality. So you'll probably enjoy it if you are interested in games. It says here it's a lot like Forager, but it gives you twist due to its 3D environment and extremely chill gameplay. Uh, that was my takeaway, but not with Forager per se. Forager is a type, a genre of games um, that... Are kind of cartoony um, but a lot of fun um, nonetheless if you're not really into these cartoony kind of games um, you'll still i think you'll dig um, forager and games like it and you'll certainly like outpath um, but i'll give it a try and i'll end up talking about it maybe um, tomorrow i don't know it really depends on um, how much time i have again 
This is uh, over at PCGamer.com by Jonathan Bolding. And I don't think that uh, the AI is going to be all that interested in playing uh, games with me um, here on Ometown, but uh, maybe I can have her analyze the the game for interest and because I think that they like um, kind of casual games, kind of chill games. Yeah, it sounds like a good one. So this next article is also over in Warcrafters. And this one is a quirky little game with excellent sailing ships to explore and battle in. Um, this too is one of these where uh, all of these articles, by the way, were sent to me. Um, I didn't actually select all of these. And um, I, I again, instantly was attracted to this game. I, I said, yeah, I want this game. I, I, and so I'll, I will probably end up with this game as well. Uh, but it's called Sail Forth. And it says here, a curious little indie launched last week, a game where you sail customizable ships across a vibrantly colored fantasy archipelago in search of ancient secrets, battling monsters and pirates while exploring new islands. Both of these games are island games. So I thought it was really interesting. Um, players and developers call it something between the vibes of Wind Waker and the third-person sailing combat games of um, Assassin's Creed Four: Black Flag, both much loved in their time. Um, both of them are older games. Uh, as you explore the islands, you grow your crew, unlocking new ships, equipment, and places to go, and you uh, build up a small collection of ships over time, specializing them for different jobs. So it seems like it's going to be a lot of fun. Um, this one, again, has that kind of cartoony feel to it. And uh, Jonathan Bolding, again, over at PCGamer.com, um, put this together. Do you think it'll be like Sea of Thieves? Um, pro well, <laughs> Sea of Thieves is um, very interactive and 3D in first person. Um, so I hazard a guess that it'll probably be... Um, Well, here, that's what it looks like. So you control it, but you're further away from the first person view of it. Um, and it is not as 3D as Sea of Thieves. Definitely not as in depth, I'm sure. Um, sea of Thieves gets you actually leave your ship and go on to islands and stuff like that. I don't know if that is going to happen in this game, um, but it looks like it's going to be uh, fast paced and you're not going to run into laggy kind of things. I don't think that it's multiplayer, um, which really just takes out any relationship to Sea of Thieves. But it says here you can find Sailforth on Epic Games and Steam for 20 bucks. It's actually 19.99, but you know, 20 bucks. Uh, looks like a pretty good Steam Deck game to Jonathan Bolding. And some reports say it works fine, but it isn't officially signed off on yet. Um, and if you're not familiar with Steam Deck, then basically um, it is a... I, I don't want to really say that. It's a tablet computer, but chonkier. It's very much like... Um, well, yeah, I mean, I can just say it's that. It looks like a tablet computer, um, but it has controllers on it and a really derpy power connector. I, I, I go apoplectic when I start talking about this power connector because it's a USB-C connector, but instead of the USB-C connector being on the bottom of the device, it's at the top of the device and it has a little USB-C umbilical that reaches up around the back of it as a cable and plugs into the top. Don't know why. I think somebody kind of wet the bed when they were designing this dock, but it is what it is. Um, but I'll end up getting this and, and we can talk about it here on the shoe. Um, if oh so interested it says here what you probably don't expect to hear next is that Sailforth has a shockingly realistic simulation of sailing for a genre and appearance 
While it's very much accessible to casual player, it has details like separately simulated wind and sails that'll get anyone who loves a tall ship excited. Well, yeah, I'll just leave that alone too. Anyway, so that is the end of the hometown daily news show for today. Um, we are right on the money for an hour. Oh dear, artificial intelligence that runs hometown. Yes, we stayed right on track. And one thing that has not happened is I haven't consumed any Hershey dark chocolate. So I should be okay. And I won't be going to Hooters. And I don't think that our town has been reorganized as rural. And we don't plan to have any battles about Barbie. I don't know. Barbie needs a bulge? That's it, folks. I'll see you tomorrow, and the artificial intelligence that runs hometown also will be available. Good evening. <laughs> see you later. <laughs>